The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, episode 887 for Monday, August 30th, 2021. Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We find our own cool stuff found. We sometimes find our own tips. We try to answer your questions. Sometimes we ask a question or two of our own. The goal being that each and every one of us, you, me, Mr. John F. Braun, we each learn at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Otherworld Computing with their new Thunderbolt dock that we will talk about more in depth in a few minutes here, but it's about to be back in stock, folks. So you are in luck. In fact, by the time this episode is released, it will be in stock. And so you are in luck here for now in Durham, New Hampshire. I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, having made it through what uh, Henry? No, not Henry. <laughs> um, Tropical Storm. This is John F. Brown. Tropical Storm Henri, I believe, is, Henri, the, is yes. the pronunciation they've chosen for their name. Because it's French. It is a French name. It's the name of a French person or a French storm or something mm-hmm. like that. Uh, yeah, I, we made it through just fine here in these parts of New England. Other parts, not so much. So hopefully things can get repaired and back to normal for, for most of you out there. Yeah. I'm glad I did my tropical storm dance that uh, that it, it veered like way east before it got to me. Is that right? Oh, I thought it hit Manhattan hard, but I guess not. Did it just hit like like Boston and Rhode Island? Is that what it was? Yeah, well, it set down in Rhode Island. Yeah, they thought it was going to set down in Connecticut. But... Right. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. OK. Uh, all right. Well, we have we've got the interesting things to go through today. We will start with listener Tony, and Tony has a quick tip for us uh, about Siri. Tony says, uh, I cannot tell you how many times I use my watch, my phone, or CarPlay to say, with or without the uh, Siri invocation phrase, uh, depending on what or where, tell my wife I'm leaving the store now, or tell my daughter I'll be there in 15 minutes, using tell is quicker and makes me feel like I have a personal assistant. I guess I do. Well, it's true. We have, we do have personal assistants. They are electronic. Yeah. Yeah. That, that tell that's really interesting uh, because it, it, it is faster. It's way more efficient than saying, send a message to right. Tell is all you need. And there you go. So yeah. Thanks for that, Tony. I like, I like all these Siri tips that we're getting. It's personal. And it is, and it feels more personal. Yeah, exactly. But but now, how how does she know who your wife or daughter are? Uh, you can set those in uh, set nicknames. Is how I do it in my mm-hmm. um, like for example, you know, for you, I, your nickname is the Shadow, and mm-hmm. so anytime you text me or call me, it doesn't say John F. Braun. It says the Shadow across the top there. So yeah. I just set a nickname for um for for people so my wife uh she is currently favorite wife uh in my phone when i set her to <laughs> current 
What's that? I'm sorry. How many wives do you have? Just the one. Just the one. I, I, she's also my first wife. Um, and and mm. I've been known to introduce her that way. She also doesn't like that. And and mm. when I had her in my phone as current wife, that did not go over well. So mm. so I had to change it to favorite wife, and that that's much better. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. Wife guy, eh? Well, you know, you could have fun with it. She introduced me somewhere as her current husband. That's where I got the idea mm. to put her in my phone as current wife. But that didn't matter. It didn't matter. I, I still was, um, I was blamed for, uh, invoking that and putting it on my phone. It had a little hard after it. It was really nice, you know? So, yeah. So I set, uh, I set the, the nicknames there. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your Mac. Uh, you may in, in contacts on the Mac, you may have to say like add field if it's not already in there as one of your defaults. So just bear that in mind uh, if you're, if you're looking for that, but, uh, but yeah, then it works out fine. I can say, you know, tell my favorite wife on my way, on my, on my, on my way home. And, uh, and there it goes. So, uh, all right. We good on that. Do you, uh, you going to maybe do that later, John, or are you doing this now? No, it's just, uh, I'm I'm trying to identify another field that you can do this with because I recall I think is it this one or this entry one of my entries maybe it was a nickname okay but I remember one of my entries it had my sister Marcus sister there was there was a time and I'm looking to see if there's like a relationship uh, thing here but there's not there. Hmm. There was a time when there was a way to set relationships in a prior contacts app, but I, I do have I do have a memory of that too, but I don't think that exists now. If you have a better idea of how to do this, feedback at MacGeekab.com is where we would love to hear from you. That's right, folks. He said feedback at MacGeekab.com. That is correct. All right, uh, let's do, we have some tips in the form of follow-ups, including, uh, or starting with one from listener Scott. He says, uh, back in Mac Geekab 882, Jed asked about folder actions, and you folks told him about Hazel. Um, if someone does not want to purchase Hazel, though, Mac OS does still include folder actions uh, by way of Automator. You can create a folder action inside Automator. He says, I have several folder actions that I created uh, with various run functions like run an Apple script, run a JavaScript, run a shell script, and you can do whatever you want with the file once it lands in the folder. He says, one of my favorite folder actions is for my downloads folder. This is actually what Hazel sets up by default. So very interesting. Uh, He says, when a new file is added to the downloads folder, Automator runs a shell script that determines the file type and moves it to a folder, a subfolder in the downloads directory. Then I create a symbolic link in the downloads directory to the moved file so that I can find it quickly. That helps me keep the unwieldy directly directory somewhat organized and prevents me from getting caught. So I like that. Yeah, I, I you know what? I had completely I had assumed I, it wasn't that I had forgotten. I knew folder actions existed at one time. I thought they had been deprecated. I didn't think that they were there anymore. So this is one of my five things to learn. Thank you very much, Scott. That's great. Is good. You want to take us? Do uh, you have any thoughts on that one before we go to no. Bob? Okay, all right, Bob, it is. Um, so Bob wrote in and gave us a description of what is happening with interleaved memory. In the past show, we had someone who was having issues 
with kernel panics because they had two different size RAM modules. Right. An 8 and a 16. Um, the way they stopped the kernel panics was to put two 16s in. So, um, but, but, um, but the point here, yeah, so Bob wrote in. So what that is called is interleaved memory. And I guess the best way I could... Interleaved when you have two of the same size. Two of the same, exact same memory module. Got it. Uh, enables something called interleaving. Um, and if I had to sum up what he's saying here, um, if you're reading from two dissimilar RAM modules... Um, the machine has to kind of do the hokey pokey. Um, the, the bottom line being it takes two, uh, two memory cycles in order to read from dissimilar. If they're matched, if they're a matched pair and they're both the same, it only takes one. He did, he did offer a little bit of, of context there, which I think is relevant that uh, the way memory works is that the first cycle, the trip drains the location, uh, and then the second cycle is that the chip rewrites the contents back to the location. So you can't read again on the second cycle to your point, John, right? It has to, it has to wait to write it back so that it can then read from a different location. Whereas if the memory's interleaved, it can sort of link it together and go down the line and read from one and then read from another while it's writing back to that one and, and gain some efficiencies there. It's not, it's not always going to be twice as fast. In fact, rarely is it going to be twice as fast because you're not doing sequential memory access all that often. But when you are, it can be a whole lot faster. I'm still I'm still perplexed about why not having interleaved memory would cause kernel panics. Mm -hmm. But mm, who knows? Maybe he's running some uh, kernel extension because you can still run those that relies on a timing of things that that was the system was not able to provide without the faster memory access i don't know so mm -hmm. it's interesting yeah fun stuff thank you bob thanks john it's I, I never understood until now how interleaved why interleaved memory was faster and it's because of that double cycle thing and i i didn't know yes that. I call that the hokey pokey. That's the technical term. I, I, yeah, no, the hokey pokey. That's it, man. Yeah, yeah. The memory um, hokey, hokey pokey. Remembering yeah. the hokey pokey. Yeah. Yeah, I link to a, a, a Wikipedia has a thing that goes over this as well. And it Got has it. pretty pictures too, so. All right. Well, we will we will put that in the show notes at MacGeekUp.com. If you want to sign up to get the show notes delivered to your inbox so you don't even have to think about it. Go to MacGeekGab.com, put in your email address, and we will send them to you every week after the show comes out. And, you know, it's interesting. We had a note from listener Andrew, which I don't have in front of me, so I will paraphrase. But he, he explained how he uses the show notes and how many of you might be able to use the show notes to sort of be your safety net. You can listen to the show. You don't have to take notes because we are putting those notes over there at MacGeekGab.com, you've got a reference for the things that we mention in the show. And we try to be as exhaustive as we can about that. The other thing that we've started doing more recently is highlighting some segments and releasing them as individual videos. So you get to see us talk about these things, sometimes even with visual aids. But, um, but you know, you can carve out segments of the show. And of course, this episode that you're listening to right now, audio wise, has chapters. 
So you can skip around in the chapters and the chapters are often named for the very thing that we're talking about. We try to put lots of chapters in the show. So lots of things to help you get value out of this while you're learning things. So see, I'm, I'm already at like at least two things. I think maybe even three. I didn't know about the tell with Siri. I didn't know about uh, that folder action still existed. I didn't know about interleave memory. Uh, I do have a dog though, although I haven't put an air tag on her yet. Uh, but but that may be coming. Jim, uh, after our discussion in the last episode, shared with us a piece about why you might not want to uh, put air tags on your dog, or at least why you might not want to rely on air tags to help find your dog. And the issue, in summary, is that dogs roam where there are no phones. So it won't do nearly as well as a, you know, a GPS based tracker that links to like a cellular network or something, which is how most of those dog trackers work. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've seen those. At yeah. Various shows. Yeah. Um, of course they're a bit more pricey, but then it's a GPS and, and a, and a mobile radio. Yeah. And service um, for the mobile radio. So, and the other thing is if it's a good, but uh, although if it's a good dog, it should come when you call it and, what if you don't know to call it? What if you don't know that it's run off? Well, I mean, that's the thing, right? What if it can't hear you? What if it, what if it went yeah. off in the woods? No, that's a good point. Uh, yeah. Good point. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, one last follow-up from, uh, well, based on a conversation we had with Bart. Yeah. So um, the, the question was, we were speculating about how one could see, could diagnose network issues by seeing how many receive or transmit errors there are in a particular interface. How do you do that, you ask? Now, one way you could do it was to use the network utility, which has since been deprecated um, in Big Sur, though you can take a version from an earlier OS and it will run under Big Sur, as I found out. Um, but if you want to do this from the command line on Mac OS Big Sur, the command is netstat dash I as in India, B as in Bravo. Do you know what those are? The I and the B stand for in, in, in those off the top um, of your head? No. Okay. Well, I, I just figured I'd ask. Uh, we can, we can always look it up. You can do a man net stat and E T S T A T and uh, man short for manual page. So uh, dash I allows you to specify the interface and then uh, dash B says with the interface display show the number of bytes in and out so that's how you get your um your your and maybe you don't even need that maybe you just can you just do netstat dash i and you will get um i get i errors and o errors so you don't even need the b you can just do dash i it oh, looks like right. yeah i think uh well well yeah, you're you um it's weird the way it doesn't line up the 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 yeah. columns sort of are off center from their labels at the top of the the screen but mm -hmm. I think it's all there. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's yeah cuz I'm showing zero errors on both. So it, yeah, netstat-i gives you a slightly cleaner interface. Uh interface is the right word but it's also a confusing word. Display, I will say, uh for reading those. So, yeah, very good. All right, John, in, uh, in the intro, I mentioned our sponsor, and I want to talk more about this here. Other World Computing, of course, this week 
is our sponsor. And I am stoked because we get to talk about their Thunderbolt dock, which is this thing. This is what you want, right? Because it's got 11 ports on it, but four of them are Thunderbolt ports. So that means one goes up to your host Mac, and then you've got three more downstream ports that you can plug into drives or even another dock if you want, right? So it really, truly allows some expandability, especially on these M1 Macs that only have two Thunderbolt ports to begin with. And of course, this is, uh, you know, it, it leverages what we are calling Thunderbolt 4 for that Thunderbolt hubbing that allows you to expand the number of ports. It's also got gigabit Ethernet. It's got three USB-A ports on it as well, right? And there are there are 10 gigabit USB-A ports. So you've got, you know, plenty of speed there for your drives and stuff. Only You only have to put the even faster drives on your Thunderbolt ports and tie those up. But you can put 10 gigabit drives on the, uh, on the USB ports there. It's got gigabit Ethernet. And, of course, it provides power, upstream power, to your Mac. It'll do 90 watts of power to charge your laptop and then give power delivery to all of your connected devices. Uh, and did I mention it as an SD card slot? I know, man, like they figured out <laughs> it, like they figured out what you need and then gave you that plus a little bit extra so that you've got, you know, some, some love coming, coming down the road. It's got a USB two port on the front of it. So the, uh, the, the, the USB three ports, the 10 gigabit ports are on the back USB two port on the front. It's got a headphone jack. It's fantastic. The way that they've, They've really put this thing together. They are back in stock uh, as of the end of yes. the week of the 20 something. So when this episode comes out on the 30th, you will be able to order them uh, and get them. It's two seventy nine. Very cool. And uh, I, I have one of these. Uh, John, do you, you don't have one of these yet or or no? Um, no, well, we probably. Need but when I get one. an M1 Mac, I'm going to have to get one. Mm hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I have one of their older older docks, which yeah. uh, which I use on this machine. Um, yeah. And what else? 8K display. I don't even have an 8K display, so it supports both 4K and 8K displays. So that's pretty neat. Outstanding. Very cool. And uh, yeah, like I said, you can go order it at uh, maxsales.com. The link's in the show notes if you want to use it from there. And our thanks to Otherworld Computing for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's go to... Let's do some cool stuff found and see how we do here. We've got we've got quite a few things that are sort of piling up. So I'm excited to flush the queue. The first comes from Gadget Coma on Twitter, who asked us and told us about Maestral, which is M-A-E-S-T-R-A-L, an open source Dropbox client. Uh, he says that he got frustrated with Dropbox still not being M1 native. Maestral is M1 native. And as a bonus, it doesn't count against your three client limit because it's not a native Dropbox client. Uh, and so you can you, know, you can put it on multiple Macs. It connects. And he says memory use is one quarter of what Dropbox uses. Yeah. Dropbox's Mac app has been not the most efficient thing on the planet. Let's put it that way. And I'm glad to see this. I stopped using the Dropbox app a long time ago, I just hmm. sync. Well, I use cloud sync on my disk station and I have every, all of my syncing services, Google drive, uh, you know, box, whatever I happen to be using at the time. Dropbox, oh. of course, I use cloud sync on my Synology to sync all of those just to my disk, uh, disk station to a folder there. And then I sync that using Synology drive 
to my Mac. So I only have one sync client running on all my Macs and everything's there. I don't have to keep things up to date. I don't have to worry about accounts or anything. It's all just one place. And of course, that also doesn't count against my three client limit on Dropbox. So, but this Maestro thing, if if you are running a dedicated client for Dropbox, which I'm, I'm assuming most people are, this seems like this is if this were me, if it were me, I would use this very, very, very quickly. I would use this. So, yeah. Thank you for that gadget coma. Pretty cool, huh, John? Very nice. Yeah. I was looking at my Mac this morning, John, and thinking about, you know, what what tools, what tips, uh, what things do I do that we haven't shared in a little while. And one app that I I use constantly, in fact, I'm, I'm using it right now, is called Amphetamine. We've talked about it on the show before, but I think we'd only talked about it when one of you told us about it. I hadn't really integrated it into my workflow yet. Amphetamine is built to keep your Mac awake. And what's cool about it, it you can do this from the command line. There is built into Mac OS. If you go to the terminal and type in the word caffeinate, uh, that will keep your Mac awake. Uh, and then if you, um, I think even with, with caffeinate, I'm looking at the man page, you can do a dash T and give it a number of seconds that it will stay awake and then, uh, you know, allow it to go to sleep, assuming nothing else, keeping it awake. And then you can set assertions to keep the display from sleeping or, or, you know, prevent the disc from sleeping, all those things. So I'm assuming amphetamine just leverages caffeinate, but it's a nice little GUI interface and even better is you can set triggers. So, for example, I know FileMaker is a great example because we connect to a FileMaker server, a remote FileMaker server. And if my Mac goes to sleep while FileMaker is running and then wakes up, I get all kinds of pesky error messages saying, oh, I lost my connection to the server. And it's like, yeah, but just relax, just reconnect. It's going to be fine. Uh, and it lost because it went to sleep. Well, I don't like to have to deal with all those error messages and quit FileMaker and relaunch it. So I just have my Mac set that if... Uh, if file, I have amphetamine set that if FileMaker is running, do not let my Mac sleep. That's it. But I also have Marco Arment's quitter running to quit FileMaker after two hours of me not using FileMaker. So my Mac won't stay on forever. It quits FileMaker. And then, of course, amphetamine realizes it's quit and will allow the Mac to sleep and all that good stuff. So and I guess I suppose my cool stuff found is the combination of uh, quitter and amphetamine to uh, to really manage what's going on with your Mac. Because it is really nice if I'm, you know, QuickBooks is the same thing. I do not want my Mac to go to sleep while QuickBooks is running. And so uh, so I have the same sort of thing set up. And, it, and the two of those apps together work really, really well. So so I share them both. I don't know. Do you use either of those apps, John? Nope. Okay. All right. No, uh, I, I like my Macs to go to sleep. Well, same. But I just don't want them to go to sleep when I, mean, I love my Macs to go to sleep. Otherwise, I would just tell them not to go to sleep. But I don't mm -hmm. like them to go to sleep when it's going to cause a problem. And so, you know, having FileMaker open during the day, it's fine. My Mac stays awake, uh, you know, but if I'm gone for more than an hour and a half or whatever I have it set to two hours, I guess they said, then uh, then FileMaker quits and my Mac can go to sleep. It's um, it's a way of letting your computer manage your life for you, which I really like and managing its life. So and I think the place you set that. Is there a way to do that? Um, energy saver. System preferences energy saver, I think, is where you can set certain sleep parameters. Yeah, it's limited, but but you're right. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Moving on. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. All righty. Then we will move on to a cool stuff found from Ralph. Ralph uh, shares with us the uh, NOCO Boost GB40. He says, I recently had to jumpstart my car and my neighbor helped out with a portable battery to get me going. Uh, my battery was completely flat, a 12 volt battery in a midsized SUV. The portable battery we used was the size of a hardcovered book and weighed about two pounds and it worked like a charm. So naturally, I thought I got to get me one of them. So the same day, I went to the local auto parts store and bought the NOCO GB40 jump starter. Uh, it is designed to jump start a vehicle with a dead battery. Uh, I charged the booster battery with a USB plug into 120 volts AC. And the bonus is that it can also charge USB devices. And it's not all that big. It's it's uh, it. You know, the trick is that it has enough juice, enough amperage to turn over the engine and actually get the, you know, get the battery going. So that's the, that's mm-hmm. the key. I don't have that one in my car, but I've got one like that. I highly recommend it. Uh, you know, check it every three to six months just to make sure it's holding a charge for you. But otherwise that's a thing I keep in my car for sure. You said you have one too, John. Um, I have uh, old school. It's a, I think it's a black and Decker. Okay. Probably weighs about 15 pounds. Oh, um, oh, a big one. Okay, okay. Yeah, it also has an air pump and charges USB and, and stuff like that. So I got you. Oh, that's nice. cool. Oh, uh, put a link to that in the show notes if you would. That that sounds like a, a good, you know, multi-tool for the car. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, having one of these small little ones that you can just kind of keep in the car without thinking about it, without it being in the way, that, I, it saved my bacon. I, super, we, we, it, it's weird. We now all drive Subarus in my house. I don't know why, but it's just how it worked out. And they have an issue where it's way too easy to leave an interior light on. Um, they can get flipped on. It's it's really my only complaint, and it it spans all three of our Subarus. The uh, I have an Outback. We have a Legacy that the kids use, and and then of course Lisa drives a WRX because you know that's what she wants to drive. <laughs> Uh, and all three of them can suffer from this. So, you know, I've had this in the car and it's like, oh yeah, just like wired up. I don't need to worry about like trying to get jumper cables in proximity to another vehicle. So yeah, it's good. I have a couple from the last Pepcom that we attended remotely, John. And, uh, one of those is the, I just blue light screen filters. I think I, this is blocking blue light has become a a fairly common thing over the last uh, couple of years. And I think we saw even more of it with, uh, you know, with pandemic and so so many of us spending so much time looking at screens. And these are screen protectors for your iPhone starting at thirty five bucks for your iPad at forty five and for your laptop th- starting at, at just uh, thirty nine. And so you just put them over your screen and they block that blue light for you. Of course, if you wear glasses, you can get blue light filters built right into your glasses. I did this on my last few sets of glasses and I, like it's flawless. I don't notice it at all. So, you know, I was worried I might see a yellowing, you know, tint or whatever, especially on my non sunglasses. Cause I, I, I wear glasses when I drive and watch TV uh, or watch concerts. Right. That's basically my, the three places I, w- I wear glasses for distance, obviously. And, uh, and I, I was worried about the ones that I use in the living room for watching TV because I thought, oh, it's going to yellow things. Not at all. So and it, it does. It makes a difference, especially kind of staring at screens for a long time. So highly recommend doing something about blue blocking. And this is one thing that you can do um, 
my kids both have, I probably should do it too. get um, non prescription blue blocking glasses for when they're spending a lot of time at computers, which you may be surprised to find out. I do. So there you <laughs> go. that, Oh, plus the anti glare thing makes a huge difference too, both for me and for the people who have to look at me if I have glasses on. So um, yeah, it's good. Nice. Of course, the other way to do this is uh, Apple added something called night shift, which I think, does pretty much the same thing i think not pretty much the same thing it it doesn't actually block the blue light as well as right, right. a filter that's going to block the blue light yeah it it changes the color and mm-hmm. so you're it's sending you less blue but it doesn't okay. it's not really it's not blue blocking in that way it's yeah Got yeah, it. yeah 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 it, but you're right i mean it's it it makes it better it and certainly makes it easier on the eyes yeah yeah for sure um the the second thing that I saw at Pepcom that that we had yet to talk about and has still been in the uh, in the queue here for a while is the Molto by Cooking Pal. This is this magic little device that you just sort of throw all your ingredients into and it makes your food. It comes with its own tablet. It's a thousand bucks. So it's not clearly, you know, not inexpensive, but you um it's a kitchen robot is is essentially a way of talking about it. You just put all your ingredients in, tell it what you're doing. It sort of coaches you through this. And then uh, it, it even like will do it some level of self-cleaning. And then you can you can, I think, clean it in the dishwasher. You, you got to just go watch the videos that they have for this thing, because it it really is. It, it It's amazing that they've been able to to build something that just sort of does what needs to be done. So. Uh, a thousand bucks is a lot, but if you, you know, if you, if you value time for convenience, then maybe it's not that much at all. So I, I was impressed by this thing. So, and it, it just walks you right through it. So I don't have one. I I've only seen demos and, you know, remote demos in the videos. So, uh, but I wanted to share it in case anybody was, was looking for something fun like that. Had you seen this thing, John? I think, uh, I think I saw it at a, a not the most recent Pepcom, but yeah. I saw it at another show. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, okay. Cool. And then um, I recently got a thing that I've been testing out, John, called the Rotor Riot Game Controller. So it is a, um, it's a, it looks like a, you know, an Xbox or a PS4 game controller kind of thing. It's got the, the D-pad and the two joysticks and the you know, four buttons and the, the bumper buttons and all of that. What it has, though, is a lightning cable to connect to your iPhone and a mount so that you can put your iPhone in the controller. And, uh, and that is what allows it to be a pretty cool little thing. Uh, and then, you know, you've got your iPhone right there in the controller. And uh, it just, you know, it's zero latency because it's not trying to do Bluetooth or anything for your, it's, you know, it's an MFI controller. So any games that support a controller, and there are tons of them, uh, will, will work. And, uh, and it just, it just does the, uh, just does the job. It's, it's pretty cool. I've, I've been, my son and I have been messing around with it and, uh, you know, I'll put it in the video link and we'll, 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 um, we'll, uh, we'll publish that as a separate video, but you can see is, you know, you hit the buttons, it knows it's, it's right on the, it's, it's right on the money. So very cool. It's 50 bucks and it's the rotor riot wired video game and drone controller, uh, which I suppose, of course, your drone app would work with this too. Why not? So 
Uh, I thought for 50 bucks, this is a pretty good thing. And uh, having it wired up means your iPhone can charge this thing too. So it's got the juice that it needs and it's got the, it's got a, um, uh, 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 what, what's the right thing? A friction mount for your iPhone. So it fits all size iPhones and it just kind of fits right in there. Just like, uh, like you might have in your car or something like that. So pretty cool stuff. That's why we call it cool stuff found. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Russ, listener Russ sends in a cool stuff found. We were talking a little while back about changing the pitch and playback speed and things like that of your, uh, music or anything really. And he says another similar solution. You said, uh, he said we came up with, with capo, which will do that. Another similar solution is an app called any tune, which is also available for iOS and Mac OS. And it is a universal app. So it runs native on M one. Uh, he says, I've been using it for years. It can change the pitch, change the playback speed without changing the pitch and loop sections so that you can practice them. If that is what you're doing it for. He says, I like to record rehearsals with voice recorder on my iPhone and then edit it down to individual songs using something like audacity, but you could also do it with GarageBand. Uh, and then I load them into any tune so I can practice them on my own. Ooh, I like that idea. That's really smart. Thank you, Russ. That's good. I love this, man. Learning all <laughs> kinds of things. All kinds of things. Um, two more cool stuff's found, John? Okay. All right. Uh, listener Scott, we were talking about diagnostics on the iPhone. And listener Scott says... Um, Many episodes back, uh, I heard you lament and wish that there was a console app for iPhone. If that was the case, then I think I found what you were looking for with a free Mac OS app called Apple Configurator 2. Packed with a lot of features, including being able to rearrange your iPhone screens like you used to in iTunes. Uh, let me know what you think. And he's totally right. You can see the iPhone's console in Apple Configurator 2. And I didn't know that was in there. Uh, and you also can see it if you run the Mac OS console app. So the, the regular console app on the Mac, if your iPhone is connected to it, then you get to uh, see, see that it has to be connected via USB or lightning. And so my issue with that, John, is that it means the phone will be charging when it's connected, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Because you can't have it connected to your Mac via lightning without it passing power across it. So the phone will be in charge mode and that changes the phone's state. And it means the phone will be doing different things. What I really want mm. and will remain a geek challenge is the ability to see the iPhone's console when it's not connected to any sort of power. So that if you've got an app that's running rampant on battery, you can really see what's going on. Because as we've proven here, the battery listing and settings shows you a subset of those things that are chewing your battery and not necessarily the most important ones at all times. So... So, mm. right? Does, that, does anybody make a lightning cable that only does data and not charging? Mm. Oh, that would be interesting. Because remember, we talked about this with USB and to avoid getting hijacked. This is how people make special adapters that only do data and not, or only, only do, do power, power and not data. Right. Because you right. may not want data. Right. Right. Yeah. This we want. We want the, the other the other side of that. Yeah. I don't know yeah. if that's possible, but maybe I also think and I will put this on any developers out there, including my dear friend, Mr. John F. Braun. 
Uh, while I don't, well, I know Apple would not allow you to put an app in the app store that showed the console on an iPhone. Would it be, is it possible to use, you know, a non-public API or a non, non-permitted API, I should say, to display the console in an iPhone app that you write for yourself? Because if that's the case, that's fine. I don't mind, you know, building an app that I install locally so that I can see this. Uh, it's just mm-hmm. for troubleshooting. So that would be another way around. So I'll put that out there. It, my, my guess is if it's doable, it's very simple. And I say this having no knowledge of whether or not that's the case. But my guess is it's either super easy or super not uh, super impossible. Mm-hmm. So. So, throw it out there. I have a question for you, Mr. John F. Braun. Do you use Keybase at Keybase.io? What's Keybase, Dave? So, (laughs) Keybase has evolved. I started using Keybase as a place to store my, and and look up my uh, PGP keys, right? Because these are, are public keys that are out there and it's nice to be able to manage them and, and see them in a directory and also find other people's keys in a directory. And so that's what I started using Keybase for. It has evolved since I installed it on my Mac though. And I've just let it update over the years. Now it has like chat in it and file sharing, and you can have groups uh, in there too, so that you're chatting, not just with one person, but with multiple people and you can connect to your Twitter communities and even Reddit. And I think GitHub as well. So it, 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 yeah, it's like secure messaging and file sharing, leveraging these PGP keys that, that live out there. So I don't, I I saw it the other day. I saw it push an update or it pushed some notification. I was like, I got to look at this again. And, uh, and I was like, why, why do I have this here? Like, what, what, what's (laughs) this for again? Because it really was just a place to look up other people's PGP keys, which I also don't do a whole lot of, um, encrypted email is not. It's not all it's cracked up to be, folks. It's a whole lot more of a headache than anything else. It it's it feels like a it for the uses that I have seen in I have experienced for me. It seems more like a novelty than anything that's actually helpful. Uh, certainly, there are scenarios where sending encrypted email is literally saving lives. Like I, I get it, and I'm glad it exists. But for me, it's a novelty with a with a side of headache that isn't really worth the novelty of it. So I've abandoned all my S mime keys. That was a disaster. Um, and I have my PGP keys because you don't have to renew them. But I'm not sure that like I'll I, I don't think I will buy the next version of Mac GPG, for example. Uh, I hope I mean I may I may wait to buy it until somebody sends me something that they've encrypted and then I'll. I'll be angry with them, but I'll go buy Mac GPG so that I can see what they've sent me. I suppose. I don't know. That's, that's sort of right. That's where I'm landing on this. Do you still use any of those encrypted email or anything like that? Um, uh, yeah, I don't really use GPG because it would always be lagging as far as support for mail. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I think they caught up, but they did. Nobody that I communicate with really uses it. Anyways, and S-MIME, uh, as you know, I, I tried to renew, so we, we found another place uh, uh, that's not Komodo. I think it was uh, an Italian company. Yeah. 
And I tried to renew my certs because they expired this month. And I was able to renew my personal one and my Mac Observer one. And one of the um, one of the Mac Geek Gab ones. But the other one, they never sent it to me. I kept applying and they were awesome. And I never got it. So I don't know if they limit it to three or. Oh, three per IP address or something, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, oh. I don't know. Yeah, it. I, you know, you know why? As as we're having this conversation, it's it's immediately obvious to me why this has sort of languished, and it's because if we need to communicate end with end to end encryption, there are apps out there that will simply do this for us. iMessage, chief among them, but also things like Signal and Telegram, right? Where you are, everything is end to end encrypted, and so you don't need to jump through any hoops. You just you know set it up. Most of those you just link to your phone number, so you don't really even need to go through the process of setting up an account. You just link yourself to it, and boom, you're in. And now it, you're end-to-end encrypted with the person you're you're chatting with, and it's way easier than trying to jump through all the hoops we just discussed that used to, well still are necessary for email. So I think that's it. Do you use Signal and Telegram and things like that? Like, do you, do you have accounts on there? No, you set those up. Oh. I, I, I would I would advise you to do that. I, it's not a bad thing. It's it won't take very long. Uh, like I said, you're not having to jump through all kinds of, you know, account hoops. You just link it to your, your phone number, your mobile phone number and you're done. But um, but that that's a that's a good place for those kinds of things. I message as well, but I message obviously only uh, if you're within Apple's ecosystem. So, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is that pretty much. All mail connections, or last I looked, um, will tunnel it through SSL. So sure, but your sense, data your data is yes. not encrypted. The, the, Under, the, understood, but right, the, yeah, but but the so if somebody's watching right. your connection, it's going to be gibberish because it's using SSL. Um, it's not going to be encrypted on the server, right? Somebody in the middle could theoretically see it in the clear right yeah and the same thing you know so imap and and smtp uh, uh there is an option to encrypt both of those that's right so. yeah but again only for the transport not for right. the actual not for the content not yes. for the content yeah exactly yeah 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 i mean yeah. for the content you could use something like this is a, a tool that uh came out a number of months ago and it's still it's still current and I think it's still free, but in crypto. Okay. E-N-C-R-Y-P-T-O. Is that right? Yeah. All right. Ooh, who's that? From? It's from MacPaw. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. A lot of good stuff. Yeah. So um, so if you want to encrypt your payload, that's probably a good thing. I mean, you could also use zip from the command line. There's an encryption option. Oh, sure. Yeah. That as well. But then you so. need to be sharing keys and things like that with people. Right? Um, if, it if just all- uses a passphrase. No, well, that's what I mean. A key. Mm-hmm. Password is a key. So you need to yes, have yes. some secure way of communicating with that person already to right. share the password, which is the beauty of, you know, public key encryption where somebody can encrypt but not decrypt. And that's what Signal and Telegram and iMessage and, uh, you know, and those do as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And as Paul Franz points out, even though if you send me an email, for example, John, the connection from you to your mail server is encrypted because you make sure that it is right for, for the outbound mail. The encryption from me to my mail server for inbound mail is also mm-hmm. encrypted because I make sure it is. 
but the connection between our two mail servers, you and I have no control over and may or may not right. be encrypted. And in many mm-hmm. cases is not these days. So thank you for right. that, Paul friends. Live.macgeekup.com is where Paul and many others uh, hang out and join us for the uh, weekly party that we throw when we record the show. You can join the party, too, and, and contribute to the show. We had uh, questions last week from from folks in the thing. And obviously this week we've got uh, we've got help, which is great. All right. Uh, yeah, that's what we got. Maybe it's time to add. We've got some network questions on deck. Shall we uh, shall we see how many of those yes. we can do before we burn ourselves out? All right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> OK, uh, we will start with. Well, we will start with one. I was going to say we'll start with an easy one. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to set us up for failure like that. Uh, Gary says intermittently the kernel task process on my iMac Pro running Big Sur starts using 106% CPU, a.k.a. a full core, and the Ethernet stops working. I cannot find any logs which tell me what the problem might be. Apple support suggests that I reinstall Big Sur. It doesn't appear to be a hardware issue, and a reboot fixes it. He says, I ran hardware diagnostics as well, and that didn't report any issues. The Wi-Fi continues to work throughout. I'll probably do a nuke and pave when I move to macOS Monterey later in the year. So it will get fixed then uh, if it was just an upgrade issue. It could also be some driver, but I have no idea how to troubleshoot that. It seems there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it. Just random. I suppose a PRAM reset might be something to try. So for sure, I would do a PRAM and SMC reset first and foremost. When it's hardware, but it might be software, right? Like PRAM, SMC, those are your friends for sure. We'll put links in the show notes as to how to do those at MacGeekGab.com. But... I think there, there's there's another thing that I would try first if I were there, and that is I would go into system preferences into the network and I would highlight the Ethernet adapter and delete it. I know it sounds crazy. You're not actually extracting a piece of hardware from your Mac, though. You're just removing the Ethernet driver from the software and then go hit the plus sign. So you remove it by hitting the, the minus sign at the bottom of that list. Hit the plus sign right next to that minus sign and add, you guessed it, an Ethernet driver that will wipe out any of the settings, any of the P lists, all of that stuff that was unique to that Ethernet driver. And clearly it's not your networking stack. It is something about that Ethernet driver. And so that may be the uh, that may be the answer for you. So that's what I would try first. And, you know, SMC and PRAM never hurts to do so on your next Mm -hmm. reboot. Certainly do those. But this is what I would try first. Hopefully that fixes it because reinstalling Big Sur is, you know, throwing throwing a new haystack on top and hoping that the needle disappears. Right. And oftentimes it works. But I think this might be your needle. So check it out. Let us know. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com if it worked. Any thoughts? MacGeekGab.com. His feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Um, yes, I do have some thoughts. When when I read over this one, yeah. um, it could be a hardware issue. Okay. So replace your Ethernet cable and try a different port on your switch or a different port on your machine if you have multiple ports. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Or... Or the thing we mentioned earlier, check for the um, check that uh, uh, error count for your um, Ethernet port. Which That's I right. Think is EN one usually? Uh, I don't. Yeah, I'm not sure. It, it changes. Or is it EN zero? It, it might be EN zero on a Mac with it built in. I, I think. Yeah. It, it 
it cha- I know it changed a while back. I'm looking at um I it, like see on my Mac the ethernet port is EN2 right now. So like yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not always the same. All right. Uh listener Steve has a another networking question, sort of in a different direction. Steve asks, he says I've been a very happy Eero uh, user with their Wi-Fi 5 stuff for over three years. And because my house has a long and wide footprint, my Eero setup consists of one main router with three extenders scattered across the length of the house. Uh, Thanks to Keepa, I saw that the Eero Wi-Fi 6 dropped in price quite substantially overnight. So I jumped in and bought the new Eero 6, not the Pro, with six Eero routers and one extender. I bought this configuration because presently... I have my Arlo base station hardwired via Ethernet into my Eero 5 extender uh, and my Xbox and Samsung Smart TV Cat 5 into another Eero extender. And I'd like to maintain the same type of setup to allow for stronger and more reliable connections for those important devices. Smart, he says. But of course, the Eero 6 extenders don't have Ethernet jacks, a notable distinction. So he bought routers so that they do have Ethernet jacks. All that being said, I have a few questions. Number one. Will the new Eero 6 routers that aren't the main router understand that I am using them as extenders or will they want to establish three separate networks on my system and make a mess? No, they will not make a mess of your mesh. Uh, The Eero stuff is super intelligent and will realize that you have one main router and then one, then a series of extenders. And it doesn't matter what the type of hardware those extenders are. What is cool is each of those devices that could be a router will know that it can be a router. And if something were to happen to your main router, hardware-wise, you know, whatever, lightning strike or, or, or you know, whatever, if you just take it out of the mix, you put one of the other ones in there, obviously you got to connect it to the internet on the outside. It now has your settings and it will become your router for you and your house will continue running. So, so that part's cool, but yeah, it will know, so you're fine. His second question is, What's the best way to upgrade from the Eero Wi-Fi 5 to the Eero 6? Do I unplug all the fives, delete the network from the Eero app, and then start fresh plugging in the new 6? And am I going to see the new system setup process? Or can I just add the new 6 system concurrently while the 5 is installed? The answer is, well, you could do either. Either of these will work for you. What I did when I upgraded from Eero 5 to Eero 6 is I did the latter. I added the Eero 6 devices to my network. Actually, the first thing I did was I went in and renamed the Eero, the old Eero devices, like, you know, office dash old, you know, kitchen dash old, whatever, so that I had the names that I wanted these to be open and available to me for the new devices. And then I put the new devices in and uh, named them as I wanted to. And so I had a double network going or I had double the density of devices and then one by one, I just removed the uh, Eero 5 devices from the network and all worked out just fine. There were some there was some advice on like day zero that that might not be the best way to do it because there were some settings incompatibilities between the two. But I, A, I didn't have any problem with it. And B, it like those issues are now resolved in software. So you're, you should be good to go. So, yeah, have fun with it, man. Uh, you'll, I think you'll enjoy it, and for, especially for the way your house is laid out. I think that's a, that's a good move. Uh, I mean, I haven't seen his house, obviously, but from the way he describes his house being laid out, I don't know. Do you have any, uh, any thoughts on, on meshing for him, John, before we move on to Wilco? No, I'm still on Gen 1. 
Mm. And you have, I mean, like it still works great for you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Cool. Yeah, I get um, almost full speed. I think when I benchmark using my phone, I'll get 150. Okay. Because I think that's the size of the channel. Oh, okay. Well, I have 200 service. So if I went to six, would that, would that increase? It depends uh, on a lot of factors. It may. Uh, mm-hmm. Your phone supports Wi-Fi 6, which is a key. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, 150 is the size of an 802.11n channel, but mm-hmm. uh, which is Wi-Fi 4. The size of a Wi-Fi 5, single Wi-Fi 5 channel is 433 uh, for 802.11ac. Mm-hmm. And your Eros, even if they are Gen 0, are 2x2 two two radios, which means they can do 866. So you've got something else slowing things down there, I would say. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, All right. Yeah. All right. But moving on to Wilco, it looks like I got caught, but I haven't figured out how or why. Since a few days ago, I cannot start up Apple Mail anymore on my iMac with Big Sur. At first, I thought, no problem. I'll just use Spark. Uh, alas, same problem. It must be something very fundamental since they both show the dot in the dock indicating the app is active for about a second and then disappears and the application quit unexpectedly window pops up. There is no window, no nothing appears. Uh, for Spark, there's also the below message. The application Spark cannot be opened. And a number four, which is probably a numeric error code that we all know and love. <laughs> Use English or whatever language is local for error messages, please. Well, actually, they did in this one. All right. Anyways, moving on. After some Googling, I tried a few things. Man, he tried everything. Um, Opening with the shift key press to prevent a message being selected. No luck. Disabling all mail accounts and system preferences. No luck. Deleting a Gmail account. Restarting. No luck. Starting in safe mode. No luck. Deleting com.apple.mail-share.plist from the library. No luck. Deleted the envelope files from mail slash v8 slash mail data. No luck. Resetting the PRAM. No luck. Removed Ethernet and disabled Wi-Fi. No luck. As a last resort, moving the entire com.apple.mail service agent folder in containers and library. Man, you're good. <laughs> yeah, he did a lot. He's clearly uh, uh, driven to solve this have, problem. I wouldn't have even thought of some of these. Yeah, wow. Um, yeah, this this I'm, alone is a nice exercise in troubleshooting. It's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked to the log files with unexpectedly, but that is beyond me. I have attached the log files. Should you care to look at them? Um, okay. Maybe. Um, I looked briefly and nothing really jumped out at me. Any suggestions about the next steps could be... Uh, could be are greatly welcome and by the way everything on ios works fine so it's not a problem with this mail sir Hmm. um all right dave um i would have yeah i would have initially suspected a corrupt preference file or envelope index but he, he already took care of that um two things i could think of dave Use our friend Onyx, specifically the maintenance category. There are several rebuilding options, many that have to do with caches, like the XPC cache, components, applications. And one of those could be corrupt. Um, uh, While Onyx... uh, Okay. Um, The other thing, Dave, is that it could be a damaged app or system component. I suspect a system component. So if Onyx doesn't do it... uh, 
reinstall the OS via recovery, and maybe that'll fix whatever's broken or corrupt. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on this one. It, the fact that it's happening to two apps, I think it might be coincidence that it is two apps that run mail. Uh, it, the fact that it's quitting so sh- soon after launch tells me that it's not likely not getting to the point where it's doing anything with mail or the network or, you know, anything like that. And clearly it's not because it, you know, it can't because he turned off all of his network access at, at you know, at that point. So, yeah, I, I think you're right that there's something fundamental with Mac OS, probably some library that is corrupted that for whatever reason, these two apps happen to use, but the only way you, you and I mere mortals get to fix that is, with a maintenance reinstall. Then when we say maintenance reinstall, we mean an over the top reinstall. You don't have to nuke and pave, just reinstall big Sur, Like John said, from recovery mode to exactly that it should inherit all of your settings, but replace any components of big Sur that may or may not have uh, survived. So hopefully yeah, the, f- the funny thing is, is that I think uh, remember last week when we were talking about Dropbox on my Mac mini, uh, and I'm looking and I got a similar error message. It says the application Dropbox can't be opened. Mm, right. Well, it says 254 instead of four. So I, what does that number mean? <laughs> yeah. uh, Maybe it's random. I don't know. It might as well be. be. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, hopefully, hopefully some of those things help. But I think that maintenance reinstall is going to be the key for you. Yep. All right. Andrew uh, has a question. He says, I recall in days past that there was the ability to use iMessage uh, on your local network to chat with another computer without needing a phone number or even an account. That being said, I don't see that anymore, and I'm not sure when it disappeared. Do you know if it is still possible to chat with local users on your network who have also enabled the local option? I used to go into preferences for messages and choose accounts and could be used to do this. Uh, It was helpful at work. Yeah, so that was called Bonjour Messaging, right? It used the local network to discover other users that, like you said, had the feature enabled, and then you could do it. I think that went away quite a while ago, and I think the reason it went away, I'm speculating, is that we now have the iMessage protocol, right, that that allows you to communicate with anyone that has an Apple ID. So you don't need people with... um you know, phone numbers or anything. Certainly that's one way to communicate via iMessage or SMS, but iMessage supports it just connecting to someone via email address. And I do that with people all the time if I don't know their phone number or, or whatever. So um, that's how I would, that's how I would go about it is doing it with iMessage. I don't know though, to answer your question, that may solve your problem and might be the, it probably is the right way to go. Because most people that run Macs are going to have uh, iCloud accounts, right? And that's your iMessage account. So you, you sort mm-hmm. of all, it's already there. But for something that does bonjour messaging, that I don't know. Uh, off the top of my head, nothing comes to mind. Uh, and, and, and I'm not sure anything exists, but it's certainly possible that something does. And if you know of something, feedback at MacGeekUp.com. We'd love to, we'd love to know. All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Dogster in the chat room says, ah, we might have an answer. Snap talk is a cross platform, private chat and file transfer utility similar to bonjour compatible with Macs and windows computers. 
It's not been updated since 2010, though. It is freeware. So we will put SnapTalk in there, although I wouldn't expect it to uh, to work entirely perfectly for anyone out there. But it is from Glassbead Software. So when you see that, that that is the correct one. And uh, and he continues to point out that Bonjour was used by medical and law offices as a way of securely communicating inter office, knowing that the data was not leaving the local network. That actually makes sense. So I, I, yeah, for that reason, I can see there might well be a solution to this that's in existence. Uh, so hopefully someone knows what it is or hopefully, you know, maybe SnapTalk will work for you and then you're, you know, good to go. But 11 years old. So, you know, tread carefully or at least tread with knowledge. That's really a trick, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking of lawyer, Jeff, you have a note from... Uh, from lawyer Jeff about Synology to share. Yeah, John. Yes. <clears throat> uh, so lawyer Jeff writes in and, and says it appears Synology has learned of a concentrated botnet brute force attack, which targets Synology devices. And they have an article about that, which you can go and read to learn more. Um, what is a botnet attack? It's uh, other computers that have been taken over on the internet, all trying to beat up on you. Yeah, Synology, if you could, if you were someone wanting to launch a botnet attack targeting network storage devices like popular ones like the Synology disk station would be a great place to start because there are so many of them. They are on 24-7 and they are connected to the Internet 24-7 and their owners aren't always in there like looking at what processes are running. So they really are a great platform from which to do this if you're the type of person who does this. Please don't be that type of person, but I'm just saying they mm-hmm. are they are a good attack vector or a bad attack vector, depending on who you are. Probably bad for most of us. Yeah. Um, so he continues. Therefore, it's a good time to review what users should be doing to ensure their Synology devices are as secure as can be. And he linked to another article from Synology that goes through all of these uh the first being they have something else called Security Advisor, which I have had yell at me, telling me that my admin account is called admin, and that's that's bad. Um, though I have a strong password. Yeah, it, yeah, that's right. It, it started recently, past six months. Synology de- devices started complaining if you use an admin account named admin because the account name is one half of the attack vector, right? If you if you know the account name, then all you have to do is guess the password. Whereas if your admin account is not named admin, well then, uh, you know, now anybody trying to hack in as admin is going to fail even if they guess your admin password. So I, I get why they're doing this. Makes sense. I yeah, wish... And go ahead. I've, and I've gone through... Um, so they have a security section in their setup. And one thing that I have set up, Dave... Uh, which I think is set up by default. Maybe it wasn't in the past, but there's one feature where it says, okay, if you get X number of login attempts from this same IP, uh, shut them off. Yep. (laughs) Yep. I wish there was a way to say only allow the admin account to access from the local subnet. Mm -hmm. I realize that, Uh, right? That doesn't... It still leaves a hole open, but, mm-hmm. you know, like one of my disk stations it mostly is inaccessible to the outside world anyway. So I'm not really worried about the admin account being called admin on that one. 
However, it would be really nice to, you know, add that layer of security saying, OK, yeah, if somebody does get to the front door somehow uh, now, if they VPN in now, they would be coming from the local network and would be allowed in. And that's mm. OK. But, you know, otherwise, I guess, and I guess I could maybe there is a way to do that now that I think about it. Yeah, there probably is. There probably is. All right. Well, this is good. I like this stuff. It's geeky. Let's do a couple other geeky things and uh, call it a week, shall we? So let's um, listener Joe, while the weather, at least in the northern hemisphere, is still warm. There's people, people still doing some projects outside. Joe says, you've talked about this numerous times in the past, but now I'm building a t- detached garage and I'm looking to run cat six out to it. After multiple lightning damage issues, you, Dave, finally found a solution which works. What was that exactly? So the best solution, and it has been recommended to me many times, I have not implemented it. So this is a do as I say or do as others say, not do as I do, would be to run fiber because that is not going to be susceptible to lightning strikes, right? It doesn't transmit. Mm. There's no copper. So lightning, it doesn't transmit across the insulated fiber line or it's because it's just fiber. So you need to get some uh, converters, you know, to convert uh, the fiber to Ethernet and back. Right. That that sort of thing. Um, but uh, and then, of course, you need to run the actual fiber cable. Uh, but but that's that's it. And I will say, you know, we've got fiber in the neighborhood now. That's how that's how John and I are talking. That's how I will upload the show. Right. Uh, and uh, and I was asking them about, you know, what how does how well does this work? And the guy was like, yeah, man, you're going to be fine. Like lightning cannot touch this. And it's a super thin cable. Your biggest, your biggest issue is putting a kink in the cable. But obviously if you lay it properly and, and set it up mm-hmm. the right way, then that won't, then that won't be an issue. Um, if you don't want to do the fiber thing or, or do you want to know what I did, which is sort of the same. When I moved in here, there were two coax and two cat five E Cables, direct burial cables run between my house and my office slash garage. And that's still what's there, uh, despite a uh, stump grinder trying to kill my cables at Mm. one point. Amazingly, these four cables are run all together. I mean, they're not to call them a bundle would be a a little overstating, but they're all buried in the same place. Like there was one little trench dug and we just they laid the cables in them. Stump grinder caught one cable. That's it. And and snapped this one Ethernet cable and the other Ethernet cable and the two coax survived. So I was able to jump to the other Ethernet cable and then since then have patched the original one. So everything's all good. But um, you will need you could you could spray paint CBYD. Uh, they're supposed to do that anyway. <laughs> and also, it's a good idea if the homeowner tells you there are cables there. Don't dig there. Maybe the homeowner might not be entirely the idiot that you think they are. Um, but, you know, there you go. Yeah, I was on a uh, I was on a Skype call or, you know, some sort of VoIP video call or whatever. And the guy's out there, you know, grinding the stumps up. And uh, all of a sudden I did not have the call anymore. And this was when we had the Internet coming into the house and across the way. Right now it comes into the office and goes the other direction. But um as soon as that happened, I was, I knew what happened because I saw where he was and I went out like waving my arms like, stop, dude. So anyway, yeah. what I CBYD, of course, standing for call for you dig. I didn't know what that stood for until very recently when they uh, 
tore up my neighborhood to upgrade the uh, natural gas lines. Interesting. Yeah. Like, and what it, does that mean? What does it mean? And then they use and they then they use different colors for the different uh, type of lines. So I think blue is water. Ah, uh, I, I forget. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. Yeah. So I need to find out where my well cap is. I wonder if the CBYD people would tell me. <laughs> no, seriously. All right. Anyway, yeah, it's weird. My well cap is buried. I, I just don't know why or how or how that passed building code. But do you it, have a metal detect? I do. And I was thinking about just using that, too. Yeah, that would be the way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. But if you to get back to the, the question at hand, if you do have or decide to run Ethernet cable and you need to worry about lightning stuff, you will need Ethernet surge protectors. Uh, some of them, you, you like if you buy UPSs, some UPSs have Ethernet surge protectors built into them. You'll want to make certain that the surge protectors that you buy will allow 1,000 megabit, gigabit, Ethernet, or faster to pass through them. Because some of them in uh, certainly older UPSs would only allow 100 megabit to pass through them. So mm -hmm. you just want to have eyes wide open when you're making your purchases and all that stuff. I have been using the APC ProtectNet devices over the years, and I will put a link in the show notes to those. Uh, those have worked very well for me and, uh, and, and have saved me many times. Uh, the I have had one of them blow up over the years, but but it saved mm -hmm. everything past it. Uh, so that's you know, that's that's its job. So, yeah, there you go. Mm. Um, any thoughts on that, John, before we uh, before we ask answer ask we will ask and answer, I believe, the final question here, which is sort of related. So, no. OK, uh, listener Brent writes and says, do you have a recommendation for a surge protector to get for my cable modem. He says, I currently have Xfinity gigabit internet and my Aris SB8200 modem seems to have had its ethernet ports damaged from last night's storm. I'm planning on buying a new modem today. Hopefully that fixes it, but I would like to make sure this doesn't happen again. So of course the protect net uh, adapters are to, are, are great to have to protect the ethernet side of things. However, I don't think that would have protected you here. It's hard to say whether the lightning strike came from within your network and therefore blew up the Ethernet port on the router from that direction, or if it came in from the coax side and blew it up from that direction. I have had both happen to me. And so in addition to the ProtectNet uh, adapters or uh, devices that we just talked about, you need a coax surge protector. And I will put a link. I generally I just go to Amazon and buy, you know, whatever the, the best one is. I, I I found one just now, so I will put that in the, the show notes so you can have an example of what that is. Just make sure that whatever you get goes above fifteen hundred megahertz. The ones I found go to twenty five hundred, so you're fine. You just don't want to filter out the frequencies that are used by your cable modem's channels. So uh usually really it's above a thousand, I think, is the the key, but you know, these things will go much higher. Um so there you go. That that should should help you out. I hope. I hope. I hope. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anything else that uh, any thoughts on that, John, that, that you have while we're uh, while we're rolling? No, okay. I'm electrically surge suppressed. But not but but not you're protecting your AC, no. but not your DC. Right, right. Right. I highly recommend protecting DC. Although you I mean, you've been in that house for a very long time. You haven't had mm -hmm. any DC related issues. Doesn't mean yeah. that you won't, 
right? Mm-hmm. You know, but I mean, these things are a few dollars a piece. It's not really all that mm-hmm. much. And it's a headache when your coax blows, you know, when oh, your yeah. cable modem blows, it's like, okay, well then that's the end of that. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I recommend it, uh, just to, you know, yeah, I'm yeah. sure they, yeah. Next time I go to home Depot, I'll look, I'm sure they have them. Yeah. You might pay more. I've seen them at home Depot and they're like 25 bucks as opposed to the $6 mm-hmm. that you can get them on Amazon. Ah. And then you don't have to worry about going to home Depot because you already have it. Amazon just brought it to your house. So, mm-hmm. you know, there you go. All right, folks. Well, that, uh, believe it or not, believe it or else, that brings us to the end here. So we're just going to have to call it the end. We'll bring the band in. We will uh, thank you for listening. Thanks for hanging out with us. Thank you for sending in all your tips and your questions and your cool stuff found. We love it. We truly love it. So I don't know. Do you have anything else to share with them before we before we get on our way, Mr. Braun? No? All right. Well, Mr. Braun sometimes forgets that most of you can only hear us. So he's shaking his head now. He's had it. His voice is done. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, thanks for hanging out. Check out our sponsors, MacGeekUp.com slash sponsors for everyone. And then, of course, for our, for this episode, wow, there's all kinds of crazy noise over there. Uh, check out the uh, Thunderbolt dock from OWC, of course, 279. Great device. Follow him on Twitter, John F. Braun. I'm Dave Hamilton. The show's Mac Geekup. John, I'm going to ask you to say one thing because I got us into this. I need you to help us get out before mm. I have to uh, head out to out west to uh, mm. make some make some deliveries. <laughs> I'm going to say more than one thing, Dave. I'm going to say three things, and that's don't get caught. Made up.